No, this is fun. Scripture reading this morning is from Genesis 2, the verses 8 through 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, for there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the, is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 5, and uh, we've been working through Romans 5 since uh, early September. And if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there with me, or you can follow on the screens beside as uh, we read God's Word together. Romans 5, starting at verse 12, going uh, all the way to verse 17. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, for before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Again, the gift of God is not, like, is not like the result of the man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, uh, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? Okay, let's bat on. Let's, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you this morning that your word is eternal. And what a joy it is to gather in the midst of a Thanksgiving weekend. Some of us have busy weekends with various friends and family. 
and commitments. Some of us will be having a quieter weekend with, with less family and commitments, but we thank you that we can be together in your house here and gathered around your word, O oh God, which is eternal and which is the word of life. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would speak through your word, that you would give life to our hearts where it's needed, that you would guide us, that you would comfort us, that you'd renew us, that you'd correct us. Lord, we wish to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I would like to speak with you about the big picture. I'd like to talk with you for a few minutes uh, about the big picture of life. How often do we take a moment and back up in a way and look at the whole perspective of the meaning of life in the world? In some ways, I was trying to think what could help us get into this a little bit. I was thinking, in some ways, today's sermon and the passage we're looking at on this Thanksgiving Sunday is a bit like theological drone footage. <laughs> you know, some people have these drones and they, they, they take pictures of houses when they're going to get sold. And you see the drone like down low at the front door and then you watch the video and the drone goes way up into the sky, into the neighborhood. You can see the top of the house and you can see kind of the whole thing surrounding it. And you see this, this kind of big landscape, uh, the whole picture as it were around that one building and that one place. And I hope that this morning uh, we can look together at the big picture of life because this is a passage that is talking about some of the big questions. It's talking about some of the existential questions of life, principles about how the world works, principles about how this world operates the way it operates. And in many ways, this passage asks us uh, to consider that it is giving us an explanation for the way the world is, an explanation for the way humanity is, the way you and I are in our even daily living. Now remember, um, last few weeks we've kind of been way down low on the front door of the house in terms of photography or videography. We've been looking at the very nitty-gritty details, like the number on the front door of that house in a way. We've looked at all the specific benefits that uh, the person who has surrounded their life to Jesus has uh, in the goodness of God through the work of Christ. And verses 1 to 11 of Romans chapter 5 list all those benefits. And we spent like three or four weeks now looking at each one of those one or two at a time. I won't repeat them now. But in a way this morning we're being invited, I think, by this passage to change from the uh, telephoto lens or the zoom-in lens to kind of like a, a wide-angle picture now of the Christian life, a big-picture perspective. And the Apostle Paul is answering this question and going deeply into this question, how do we explain why the world is the way it is? And he goes deeper than he's gone before. He, he goes all the way back to the time of Adam, to the time of Christ, and into the, the future as well, promises that we have. And he talks about two great realities that are true and that exist in the world in which we live and give us a basis for understanding uh, the situation we find ourselves in. 
Of course, there are many different ways for us to understand the world, as maybe this morning you've come on Thanksgiving and maybe you're just thinking about Christian faith. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian at this point, and that's wonderful. We're, we're so glad you're here. And there are lots of different views of the world that we can have um, uh, that, that, that help us explain why things are the way they are. I won't get into those lists of worldviews. But this morning, I want to just us to consider two broad strokes that the Apostle Paul lays out. And uh, you'll find that philosophers and thinkers and writers over the ages, uh, those who have talked about materialism and humanism and nihilism, uh, and all other kinds of worldviews we don't have time to, to delve into this morning, all of them have been forced to come back at some point in the history of their thinking uh, to these two broad strokes. Let me give you one more image for what, what we're doing this morning. Uh, a little while ago, we painted our garage door. Uh, it was a lot harder than it sounds to paint a garage door. It sounded like a very easy project, but it took a long time. Uh, and at one point, one of us, uh, Lindy or me, I won't say which one it was, was standing in front of this garage door that had been white and made this, this big, broad paint stroke. Turned out to be blue. Wasn't the right color blue in the end, but that's another story. We'll get into that, uh, in my opinion. But anyway. uh, and, that, and that picture, another broad stroke of paint over the garage door, uh, two big, broad strokes of what we can see here about how the world works. And the first reality that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is the reality of sin and universal death in Adam. Is that ever a downer Thanksgiving message, eh? My goodness. We're going to get to the good stuff here on Thanksgiving. Don't worry. We're going to get to Thanksgiving, I hope. And the second great paint stroke that the Apostle Paul wants us to, to look at is the, the greater reality of God's gift in Jesus Christ. And under that, we'll look at the reality of sin and universal with an Adam. We'll look at it explained. We'll look at a, a principle that he proves. Uh, and under the greater reality of God's gift in Jesus, we'll look at how they're similar, but really they're mostly different. And in those three ways, you say, Pastor Greg, I was hoping for a light sermon this morning. Um, I got turkey in the oven. Well, well, we'll get through this as quick as we can. We'll keep it as high level as we can as we walk through this really important question for anyone interested in living a meaningful life, a flourishing life with eternal significance. Well, the Apostle Paul goes heavy, so put on your theological weightlifting belt here and just lift some weights with me this morning. He talks first about this reality of sin and universal death in Adam. He says, therefore, after all the benefits he lists, he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's his opening kind of thing. He explains this idea, and the idea that Paul wants to explain, the, the truth from the beginning of history that Paul wants to outline and underline here is, comes in four kind of ways. That we need to realize that sin has entered the world. How did it come into the world? There was an entrance of sin into the world. Was it by accident? Was it, was it a blue crane that drops sin into the world? Was, did it just kind of happen one day? No. Paul wants us to know that sin entered the world in a very specific way. It was through one man. And we know that man later in the verses is called Adam. And it says that uh, Adam, sinning... Um, Death came through sin. That is, death came to Adam through his sin. 
And we see in Genesis 2 that Hank read for us this morning, we see that theological basis of the eating of the tree of good and evil, a wonderful theological, philosophical foundation for all of humanity. And we see that Adam eating that, uh, that he, if you eat it, you will, dying you shall surely die, is one of the translations. That that sin, that disobedience of God's command, this specific command, leads, he sins and it leads to death. Not only that, Paul says the next level is that uh, the presence of sin and death is in Adam, this one man. But what's happened in the world is that that sin and death has become present to all people, right? It says in this way, uh, death, and, uh, death came to all men because all sinned. There is this movement, this entering of sin in the world by one person. And there's this movement of that sin and therefore death to all people. Because of Adam's original disobedience, it says, because all sinned at the end is cyclical, which could be translated, in whom all sin. Now, it's easy to misunderstand this idea. Paul is not saying, listen, he's not saying that I sin and I mess up sometimes in life, that I break God's ways sometimes in life, and therefore I end up going towards spiritual death. So Paul's not saying that. That would be a, and it's something that we know from the rest of it, Paul's not saying. He's saying differently. He's saying differently. He's saying that it's bigger than that. It's not an individualistic reading of reality. Paul is saying that, uh, he's not saying I sin and therefore I am led to spiritual death. He's saying that because Adam sinned and because Death came into the world through Adam, and uh, death came in through Adam's sin, that all of us are connected in a way, in whom it says all sin, all of us in humanity, from A to Z, A to Z, are connected Adam's original breaking of God's ways. And so when we sin, we, when Adam sinned, Paul is saying, get this, when Adam sinned, in a way, he's saying theologically, that we sinned in and with Adam. And this is a huge philosophical, theological truth that Paul wants us to understand. And, 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 he, and he says, look, Adam in this way, this whole thought, is in a way the head of humanity, the representative of humanity. You say, I don't like that. I don't want to be represented by Adam. That guy messed up. <laughs> He did, I, could, I could have done better. Well, regardless, it explains the world so well. Paul talks about how he wants to live a holy life. He wants to do good things. He wants to be truthful. But yet he finds himself tied up in this power in his life that he's not able to do it. How do you explain that? You say that you're not good enough, you're not strong enough to do the right things? How do you explain that tension, that difficulty that every single person in the world feels existentially? How do you answer that idea? Well, you answer that idea, says Paul, that it's not about the individual. Think about this, humans in every place in the world. It's not about the individual, how good or bad I am. You are born into a world whereby sin and death have already entered the world. And because of Adam's sin, Paul wants to argue that each of us, in a way, were there when Adam sinned. That's a, that's a heavy statement. That we were there, that, that in a way he becomes our, our, our representative, sort of the, this head of humanity, uh, and, and we are born into that. 
Now, that's very different, as I said, to the view that I messed up, therefore I led. It's bigger than that. It's a bigger picture than just you and me. And understand the grace and goodness of Christ, we have to understand how sin and death operate and work. Now, you'll see in your Bibles, I'm not sure if it's on the screen, but at the end of verse 12, there's a little hyphen at the end of verse 12. And again, this is some heavy lifting here, but you look in your Bibles, verse 12, there's a hyphen at the end. That hyphen is like a break that Paul takes in the thinking. He think, he's, he's getting into this big argument now that he's making. It's a heavy one. And he takes this break now all the way until verse 18. The rest of the verses, uh, 13 to 17, are all an elaboration on the point that he's making here. Okay? So stay with me if you can. I know this is, uh, is kind of, I hope you're with me on this. It'll be worth it, I hope, and fruitful <laughs> if we can just write to the end. So verse 13 is a break, and, and, and Paul wants to elaborate on this idea. The idea that Paul wants to elaborate on, he wants to prove a principle to you and me. He wants to prove this idea to you and me. What's the idea he wants to prove? He wants to prove that sin and death is not something that's because of my bad choices only, but it's because Adam's sin is imputed to you and me. It's given to you and me. It's infused to you and me because we're part of humanity. That's what he's trying to argue and say. And, and, and the way he gets at this principle, you see in verse 13, is that there is a, the uni, he, he argues with the universality of sin and death even before the law, right? That's a heavy statement for Thanksgiving, I know. But verse 13, he says, before the law was given, sin was in the world. He's elaborating now on this. But sin is not taken into account where there is no law. What's he saying? He's saying, look, Adam was there, but Adam's kids and grandkids, they messed up. Think of the story of the ark, Noah's ark, a clean start for humanity. Think of um, the different sins that happened right after Adam before Moses gave the law. And he says there's this period in history when people after Adam sinned. And he wants to say that. And the period was when there was no law given, right, from Moses. No thou shalt nots, no ways to live. And so he's saying, look, there was this time when the law was not in the world. There was no, there was no traffic sign on the side of the road. You can't, go 80, you can't go over 80 kilometers an hour, right? There was no traffic sign there. Um, but yet people drove faster than 80 kilometers an hour. Uh, there, there, there was this, people were still finding themselves doing wrong even when the law was not in the world and there was no specific violation to break they were still sinning. How does he know they're still sinning? Because there was still death in the time of Adam, after Adam to, to Moses. So he's proving this principle that all of us in humanity have Adam's sin infused to us in a way, imputed to us in a way. Because look, between Adam and when the law came, there were people were still dying. And he says that clearly in verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam. To Moses, even when there was no law to break, death was still there in sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as Adam did. Nevertheless, he said, death reigned. That's the proof of the situation that humanity is in. That you can argue with every single person across the face of the globe from the beginning of history why is it that we die? 
And Paul is making a very strong statement here. There is a proof that he's trying to prove that death is the surefire indicator that Adam's sins are ours. That in a way we are incorporated within the human conundrum into union with Adam. It's a very heavy statement. To the point where you see hymn writers writing things like, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood, I nailed him to the tree, I crucified the Christ of God, I joined the mockery." I wasn't even there. But through Adam, I was there. Martin Lord Jones, that famous theologian and doctor from Wales who preached in London for 50 years, basically says, he says this point, he says, God has always dealt with us through a representative, and the whole story of the human race can be summed up in terms of what happened because of Adam and what has happened because of Christ. Well, kind of heavy, I know, but it's not me, it's in the Bible. He says at the end, I want you to know this pattern now. Remember this pattern, that Adam is a kind of Christ, a type of Christ. That when you look at Adam, we understand a sameness in how God deals with the world, right? What is that sameness? Why would he say in verse 14, Adam is a type of Christ? And we're entered into the greater reality. They're similar, Adam and Christ. And the similarity is this, that both are in a way representatives of a new humanity, right? We are in a way in union with Adam, or we're in greater union with Christ. And God deals with humanity. This is, again, a theological point that philosophers everywhere have to get to, that there is a creator of the world who does exist. We can see this in creation, points us to something higher than us through music, the moral law, other rational ways to think there is a creator. And this purposeful, meaningful creator deals with us in a certain way. And the way the Creator deals with humanity is through uh, a representative people, Adam, with whom, with, within whom we can be in union through our birth, and Jesus Christ. Theologian Anders Nygren says, Adam and Christ stand there as respective heads of two aeons. Adam is the head of the old, the age of death, and Christ is the head of the new the age of life. On this Thanksgiving Sunday, I wonder where you find yourself standing. I wonder in which age, just one, what, 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 what great eternal age you find yourself standing. Have you found yourself living and being drawn to the age of Adam and the age of death? Have you been seeking things there that, you know, you found out the easy way or the hard way that they don't lead to life? Or do you find yourself standing in the way of Christ? I want you to know that Paul teaches us here in the Bible that the way of, of Adam does lead to death. It does lead to heartache, devastation. Um, we see in the Bible, whatever is in Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is perfect, whatever is pleasing, focus on these things. There is a goodness. There is a truth. There is a holiness. There is a love. There is something better revealed by God in his son, Jesus. And we get the second great 
think of our garage door. You get the second great paint stroke now. And our garage door worked out, by the way. You can drive by sometime and have a look. <coughs> anyway, second great paint stroke. The second part of the big picture. The drone above the house in the neighborhood as you kind of look at the whole thing. The greater reality, Paul teaches us, is, is of God's gift in Jesus Christ. Right? They're similar in that, in that the idea that we're under one of the humanities, but they're mostly, Paul says, different in verse 15. He says, almost as quickly as he makes the comparison, he says, but the gift is not like the trespass. There's some similarities here that, that you know, we receive so much through one person, whether Adam or Christ, whether death and sin or life and grace, they are similar, but the similarity, Paul says, you know, stops there. The likeness is kind of over. In fact, when comparing these two great realities in the world, don't go too far, says Paul. They're mostly different. How can we compare the Lord of glory to the man of shame? How can we compare the Savior of the world to a sinner? How can we compare the, the one who gives life and offers life to people and the one who brokers death? And he gives three comparisons, three differences, right? Three differences. The first one he gives in verse 15 is in the mode of operation of these two realities. If the many died by the trespass, the one man, how much more God's grace and the gift that came by grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflows to many. In the first reality into which all of us are born, it operates by trespass. In the greater reality of Jesus Christ coming into the world and dying for us, it operates by grace. The biggest difference here is that God deals with the world on the basis of his grace. Adam's is a trespass, it's a violation, it's a, it's a breaking of God's goodness and God's way and God's command in the world, and he does it in a way uh, absorbed by maybe his own needs and self-interests, but the gift of God, the charisma of God, the gift of God that has come in Jesus Christ is out of grace, Christ's act of self-sacrifice, of self-assertion. The most giving, gracious, noble person who ever lived, who, who died for you and me in a death that is effective in shaping reality as we know it in the universe and in my life and for all time. His death, the cross stands there. Don't ask me how exactly, but it stands there in the middle of time and space. The Savior who suffered and died, who gave his life, who bled, who suffered, who took on the the wrath of God for, for me and for you. Listen, all the things we've done, all the trespasses we've done, because in a way we've chosen them, but also because in a way we're in union with Adam, none of those are, are greater than the work of Christ on the cross. Christ's grace is an invitation, a well-met invitation to, to all of us. And the mode of operation is, is not through trespass, but it's through the grace of Christ. Jesus is more. Secondly, we see another difference in the greater reality of God's gift in Jesus. And that difference is the immediate results. And the immediate results 
And we can also see a bit of the, the rationale. But the immediate results, it says in verse 16, again, God is not like the result of men. The judgment followed sin brought condemnation, but the gift brought justification. So, again, the immediate results, Adam's sin, all of us without Christ are condemned uh, because of us sinning in and with him. We are condemned to death. That as much as we, we try in our lives to use different tools and ideas to get us through a hard situation, that without Jesus Christ, what we'll find is we'll be banging our heads up against a wall, and we won't be able to find a way truly through without forgiveness in Jesus. That is condemnation versus the justification, the, the sense that we are right before God, the sense that our maker is for us and cares for us, and that voice in the back of our minds, and we say, no, God's against you. People don't like you. Uh, you don't deserve forgiveness. You don't, you don't deserve grace. All of that gets spoken to by the eternal God when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we receive justification. And the mathematics in this section about the immediate results is very strange because it, it, the mathematics are strange. Just notice them here quickly is that, is that we see this judgment uh, followed one sin but, and condemnation, but, 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 but the gift follows many trespasses. So it's, it's understandable that a judgment would lead to condemnation, but it's very strange and uh, mathematically not what's the word, uh, not, not reasonable, it's irrational in a way, that because of one act of grace, many, many trespasses of the world would be addressed. And finally, we see this difference. We see the mode of operation, grace, the eternal effects, justification, not condemnation. And we see, thirdly, the eternal effects of the greater reality of God's gift in Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 17, listen to this, uh, if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life? So the eternal effects here seem clear. One is death reigning. And one, if we read this very closely, is, in a way, those who have received the gift reigning. Interesting, eh? You and, you and I reigning by God's grace. Uh, those who have surrendered their life to Jesus reigning, in a way. Isn't that an incredible statement? That, that in the kingdom of Adam, in the end we'll find ashes. In the end we'll find meaninglessness. In the end we'll find death. But in the kingdom of Jesus, we'll find even more than the opposite of death reigning. We'll find, <laughs> by God's goodness, ourselves reigning with him. Death was our king, and we were slaves to death. We wanted to do good. We were unable to. Uh, we kept beating ourselves up when we, when we couldn't do good, and we were under the tyranny of death. But in the kingdom of Jesus, in the reality of Jesus, not only does life reign in us through his power, 
through his grace, through the work of the Spirit in my heart and in your heart and in your relationships and my relationships, more than that, we're delivered from death, but we even change places with death. We rule over death. We reign in life, and death, in a way, through the resurrection of Christ, is under our feet, and we share in the, in the kingship of Jesus. I mean, that's... Uh, that's an amazing turnaround, isn't it, for us? That in a way we're made royalty. We who deserve death are made um, sons and daughters of, of the king. And we see in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, if we die with him, we also live with him. And if we endure, we will also, it says, we will also reign with him. There was a beautiful uh, hymn, almost finished, by a Presbyterian minister back in the 1800s. He maketh the rebel a priest and king. He hath bought us and taught us a new song to sing. Do you know the song? <laughs> Have you learned the song? Are you in a place in your own life where you feel you have uh, are standing in the greater reality of Jesus? To the point where you see yourself, not under the reign of death, but under the reign of the king, a son or a daughter of the king, singing, rejoicing. Listen to this. It's how God wants us to see ourselves. Well, two great brush strokes, <laughs> a drone above the neighborhood, uh, the reality of sin and universal death that every single person has to face in their life, no matter where they're from. And the greater reality, the how much more reality, and next week we'll talk about this some more, that how much more, the greater reality of Jesus, his work on the cross, his love for you, his goodness for you. How, let's take a moment, can we respond to a thick, theological, heavy message from Romans on Thanksgiving Sunday. Thank you for your attention so far, by the way. Um, how can we respond to this? Well, I don't know, a whole bunch of ways. <laughs> One of them I just want to mention is it's Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, Thanksgiving weekend in Canada has always had a very uh, civic element to it, hasn't it? We read back in history how the United Empire loyalists left the United States and came up to Canada with them and brought traditions like turkey and mashed potatoes. And I've got a story about an uncooked turkey staying in a hot car one time. I'll tell you about that at some point. Uh, and they brought this civic engagement with them. In the 1800s, there was a Thanksgiving Sunday announced for Canada. Why? Because King Edward VII was sick and he got better. And as time went, 1911, there was a Thanksgiving Day also pronounced in Canada after the Second World War. It was in November. There were Armistice Day and Thanksgiving Day in the same month. And then eventually by 1957 or 1958, 59, there was an official Thanksgiving Monday set up by the Parliament of Canada. Which is just to say that Thanksgiving, in all the ways you think about it as a Christian in Canada, has a very civic element to it, right? A very looking out in the world around us element to us. to us, And as a Christian, you might find yourself today 
thinking and being very interested as to how God is calling us to live in the world. And we can just, I can just mention that, you know, whether we know it or not, there has been a cultural civic, a cultural civic revolution uh, that has happened in the last 15, 20 years in Canada uh, that is basically complete, basically over. Uh, within many of the structures in our society, that revolution has already happened and we're at the end of it. And if you haven't noticed it, it's a good thing to take notice of and to think about and to pray about and put some contours to. I uh, don't have time today to get into it too much, but there's lots of language that I, you could share that you'll automatically recognize this cultural revolution if you haven't already. And within this particular revolution that's happened in the Western world, it's very interesting. It's, there's lots of comparisons you can make between the two brush strokes we just painted. But one of them is that it's asked really good questions, the revolution that we've noticed. It's asked important questions about things like justice and injustice and oppression and human flourishing and things, questions about death and questions about life at the end of our life, the beginning of our lives. But it's been a massive revolution. And parts of it have been really good. Like the Christians should see the good things of this and pray them through, and we should be engaged civically in our society and in our world in meaningful ways, as opposed to withdrawing and retreating. One of the things, interestingly enough, about this revolution, last thought, is that one of the differences is that it's a bit like the reign of Adam because in it, um, there is no redemption, right? There is no forgiveness. There's no hope on the way out of this one if you're on the wrong side of it. So that's something for you to think about, big picture in the world as a Christian today. But I want to just end the sermon today with something different. I want to ask you again, what is your big picture? Maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're 15 here this morning. What's your big picture? Maybe you're 85 here this morning. What's your big picture for life? Do you, do, do you, do you see the, the reign of Adam and the reign of Christ? <laughs> Where do you want to stand? Do you revolt in a way? Maybe you're in your place of life where you're kind of, rev- kind of pushing, I don't want to be, I don't think it's fair to be in the reign of Adam. I'm an individual. I'm a smart person. I, I can do my own life. I can, I can, my own fate can happen. I don't want to be uh, in, in a way in death because of what Adam did. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. I can make my own decisions. But if that's your thinking on this and if that's your place, then also you got to remember that what does that mean then for being in the other reign, the reign of Jesus, where Adam imputes sin, Jesus imputes his grace, his righteousness, and his forgiveness. And the reign of Jesus if you had to picture it, say you pictured, you know, at your house, maybe you have little marks on the wall when people grow, maybe you have a short person and a tall person. Remember that the reign of Jesus towers above the reign of Adam. We need to understand these realities for living in the world. They are true. They can be repeated. They are the basis for the world that God has made where do you stand this morning? Do you shy away from this? Is, do you shy away from the idea that we're united in Adam to death? Or 
Are you willing this morning to be rediscovering what it means to stand in the grace of Jesus under his reign, under his goodness, the one whose grace truly does abound? Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, your word at times comes to us in, in, in sentences and in paragraphs that just, we can read them once and they touch us, they make sense, your spirit applies them to our hearts. And other times like today, they come in thicker, more dense ideas and truths that regardless, Lord, would you apply the truths of this morning to our hearts in the midst of our busyness and in the midst of our commitments in the midst of all of our acting out of thanksgiving, I pray that you will remind us and secure us uh, once more about the great reality of Christ's reign. And I pray that each of us in his grace would find ourselves standing there together. In Jesus' name, amen.